You can have a seat. Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning uh, here in person. Great to see you guys. If you're joining us online, uh, welcome to Mercy Hill. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really, really uh, excited for what we're going to do this morning. So we're starting uh, a new sort of series. Uh, we're picking back up in the book of Mark, uh, but Mark actually breaks up into two clear parts. And so uh, back in the fall, we covered the first half of Mark. We talked about Jesus as this coming or promised king. Uh, and then in the last half of the book of Mark, where we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 9, uh, Mark really turns and the tone and the theme becomes about Jesus' future death and resurrection. And so we're starting a series today called The Crucified King. So Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. If you haven't been with us before or you missed some uh, last uh, fall, uh, Mark is a traveling companion of one of Jesus' disciples named Peter. And what we know from history is that Mark actually recorded Peter's eyewitness account of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that is the book of Mark. What we have today is Mark's recording of Peter's stories about Jesus. Now you go, well, how do I know that that is true? Well, there's this guy named Papias who was actually a disciple of another one of Jesus' disciples, John. And Papias tells us that Mark wrote down Peter's eyewitness account. And then there's two other guys, a theologian named Irenaeus and a historian named Eusebius, and they tell us that the church in Rome actually asked Peter to leave them a written account, and that Mark was the one that wrote down Peter's account. And so we know from three different sources in history uh, that it seems more than likely that Mark is Peter's eyewitness account. Sound good? Breaks up into two acts. Act number one is what we just covered over in the fall about this promised king, the identity of who Jesus is. And then in the second act or the second section of the book of Mark, we're going to see what Jesus came to accomplish, what his purpose or what his mission is. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 2 in just a couple of minutes if you have a Bible. Uh, listen, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, you don't own a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back of the room. Actually, Mike, our associate pastor, is standing right next to the stack of Bibles. And so if you need a Bible, you just raise your hand right now. Mike will uh, obviously love to deliver you one. And if you don't own a Bible, just grab one of those and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it. All right, let's pray together. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, could we hear from you? And by your spirit, could you make the truths contained here known to our hearts? Amen. Uh, one of the most famous movies in all of history is The Wizard of Oz. You guys know The Wizard of Oz? Have I seen The Wizard of Oz, right? So uh, if you haven't seen it, the premise is pretty simple, although it's kind of a strange, trippy movie. Uh, there's a girl named Dorothy who lives in Kansas. Through a magical tornado, she gets trans, uh, transported to this place called Oz, uh, where everything isn't quite like it was back in Kansas. And so Dorothy is trying to find her way back home to Kansas, and she hears about a character who lives in Oz called the Wizard of Oz. He's magical, mythical, and she's heard that the Wizard of Oz might be able to get her back home. If anybody can do it, the wizard can, right? And so she sets out on a journey to go to this place called the Emerald City to find the Wizard of Oz, and she follows the yellow brick road. Oh, man, you guys are movie buffs, right? You got it all together. On the way, she meets a whole cast of characters, makes some new friends. She meets a scarecrow, a tin man, and a lion. All of them have significant needs as well, and so they all form a team to go see the Wizard of Oz. They meet the Wizard of Oz, 
Things don't go quite the way they picture in the brain. He gives them an assignment. They complete the assignment. They come back, and something crazy happens. Dorothy's dog, Toto, pulls back a curtain, and what we learn is the Wizard of Oz isn't really a wizard. He's just some dude who uh, used to be a carnival showman who's running a contraption to make it look all magical and big and amazing, right? Sometimes when you peek behind the curtain, it can be one of the most disheartening things that you've ever done, right? We can be disappointed by what is actually going on behind the scenes. Have you ever had an experience like that? You found out behind the scenes that maybe a person that you admired or looked up to wasn't all that they were cracked up to be. Uh, It could have been a church leader or maybe even a pastor. It could be what you are experiencing right now. Maybe you've been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast or a couple years ago when news broke here in our city about a guy from here, Ravi Zacharias, and you go, man, what was going on behind the scenes didn't seem to match what was happening publicly. Uh, Maybe it just happened with church. Maybe you got involved with the church and you just saw how the sausage was made, so to speak, and you were like, I'm not interested in this whatsoever. Uh, Maybe it was even maybe a little more close to home. Maybe a parent or a spouse or some other sort of loved one, someone you looked up to and you found out news about them that was heartbreaking. Sometimes peeking behind the curtain can be an emotional experience. It can be disorienting, confusing, can fill us with anger or rage, make us cynical, or even at times make us feel like giving up. What we see in Mark chapter 9, we're about to see in this text, is Jesus gives three of his disciples an opportunity to see behind the curtain, to see if he's the real deal or not. That's what we're going to find out. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, And led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So Mark says this happens after six days, just to give you some context, because it's been a while since we were in the book of Mark. What he means is six days after the story he just told at the end of Mark chapter 8. In that story, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Remember, the first half of Mark is about Jesus' identity. So we get to the end of that section, and we need to know, who is this guy? And Peter, if you remember, says you're the Christ or the Messiah. That just means the anointed one. So he's saying, we think you're the guy chosen by God that we've heard stories about. We think you're the guy. But then Jesus gives them the job description of the Messiah. He says, you're right, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And I don't know if you remember the story or not, but Peter's like, no, Jesus, slow your roll. All right? Like, how can you be the chosen king, the Messiah, the one that's going to save us, and be dead at the same time? So let's don't talk about that. Jesus corrects Peter, and then, if you remember, he kind of doubles down. Mike preached on this. And he calls a crowd around them and says, not only is the way of the king, the future of the king, the way of the Messiah going to be his own death, but he says, in fact, anybody that wants to come after me has to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The way of all of my disciples is going to be a way of suffering as well. 
Now, you can imagine for his disciples, this is not what they're expecting. It's not what they hope for. And so probably for the past six days, they've been decompressing and asking questions like, what does this mean? What does this mean that we're following a guy who's going to die? What does this mean that there's some sort of implications in our lives that we're going to have to deny ourselves, give up, uh, take up our cross and follow him? What does this all mean? So six days later, Jesus takes these three guys, Peter, James, and John, and is going to show them a little bit more about his identity. It says he was transfigured before them. What does that word mean? Uh, it just means his form was changed. Uh, and so Mark doesn't give us a ton of details into what this all looked like or if Jesus' face was different or anything like that. But what we, what we do know, what he does tell us is that he was radiant, that it seemed as though light was emanating from him, so much so that even the fibers of his clothes were changed in some significant way. And Mark wants us to know, probably from Peter's account, that it's, it's change in a way that could not be reproduced by just a really good washing machine and some Tide, right? Nobody could bleach it this way. Something is going on with Jesus' physical appearance. Then verse 4. <clears throat> and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. So Jesus' form changes. He's radiating light, and then these two guys show up, Elijah and Moses. Now, who are these two guys? Moses, you might remember from the Old Testament book of Exodus. Moses is the guy that God chose to lead his people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt into the promised land. So Moses is this key figure of deliverance in uh, for Jewish people in the Hebrew Bible. Not only that, not only that, but Moses is also the giver of the law. And so the Ten Commandments, God gives to Moses, then he gives to the people. Variety of other laws, God gives to, the Mo to Moses, and he gives to the people. Moses marks a change in God's people where they become this uniform, identified nation, people of God, who have a particular identity. That all revolves around Moses. Then... There's this other guy, Elijah. Who's Elijah? We can find out about Elijah mostly in 1 Kings. Elijah is a prophet who knows well the writings of Moses, what Moses has recorded about God, and who calls out corrupt leaders in Israel and says, hey, you guys need to get it together. You're not following God. The most famous example or story about Elijah is Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Maybe some of you guys remember that with this false God where God answers from heaven with fire, but this other God does not. He's got this, these constant run-ins with this king, King Ahab, and uh, Elijah has a pretty wild story where at times he seems to be at a mountaintop, but at times he seems to be in some pretty low valleys. But Elijah's a key character in the Old Testament as well. Now, what are they talking about? Mark just tells us that they're talking. But Luke gives us one additional detail. Luke, in his recounting of this story, uh, says in chapter 9, verse 31, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So it seems to be what their conversation is about is his departure. That actual Greek word there is his exodus. So in other words, they're talking about what, what is about to happen in Jerusalem. 
Jesus' death and resurrection and how that is going to lead to the deliverance of God's people. Now, can you imagine this moment for Moses and Elijah? They're here talking with Jesus, and they're like, oh, this is the plan. This is what God's been up to the whole time. This is what he has intended all the way through the Old Testament and with what's going on with Jesus. All right, so let's keep on. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love this detail. Doesn't this just sound like a guy recounting a story to another guy? Man, that's amazing, right? You can hear Mark saying, what did you do? And Peter said, I said, hey, how about I, we build a tent, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Mark goes, why did you say that? And Peter goes, I was scared, man. We were all scared. I didn't know what to say, right? And so he just says the first thing that comes to mind. Now, the word tent is the same word for tabernacle. You, you might remember actually going back to Moses as they were traveling to this thing called the promised land, what did they have with them? God instructed them to build a tabernacle or a big, massive tent. In the big, massive tent or the tabernacle, God's presence was supposed to dwell there. And so they would pick up the tabernacle and move it wherever they're going. So maybe, maybe Peter is like, Moses is here. There's a lot of light. It's like the glory of God is here. I don't know what else to say. But last time I read my Bible, I heard the story about when the glory of God shows up, you need a tabernacle. So maybe he's just like, I don't know. Let's get some tabernacles. Or maybe he's still thinking that the Messiah is a military leader. And maybe he's getting excited. And he's like, oh, it's about to go down. Can you imagine what's about to happen now? We got Jesus plus Moses plus Elijah. And maybe he's thinking what we need is like a little camp for our new generals and our military takeover to kick the Romans out, right? He's like, so I'm going to make sure we got this place for all of our three new leaders. I don't know what he's thinking. Maybe he's thinking this is just the big three. The gang's all here, right? Things are about to really start. It's kind of like the Celtics, right? Back in the day with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. Or maybe like the Miami Heat with LeBron James and Chris, Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade all teamed up. And then some of you who aren't sports fanatics are like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you're talking about. So maybe it's like, 70s rock music, right? It's like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and they're all together. And everybody's like, huh? Or maybe it's like if there was a movie where all three guys who had played Spider-Man all end up in the same movie at the same time. <laughs> it's like Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland all together, right? I don't know what's going on in Peter's mind, right? I'm not sure he knows either. But no one responds to him in the text. Right? Everybody's just like, uh, okay, right? Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So this cloud descends. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that a cloud is symbolic of God's presence. In fact, remember we talked about the tabernacle? Well, not only would God's presence dwell in the tabernacle, but it would be in the form of a cloud. 
And in fact, in the story of Exodus, when God wanted to lead his people to another place, he would show up in a cloud. And when Moses received the Ten Commandments, he walks up this high mountain, and guess what's up there? A massive cloud. And so in other words, what Mark wants us to know is God's presence shows up in the form of this cloud, and then they hear God's voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, if you've been with us since last fall when we started the book of Mark, this might sound familiar to you. Because in Mark chapter 1, this is exactly the sort of thing that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember? Jesus is baptized. God's presence shows up, that time in the form of a dove. And then we also get this voice from God that says what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, this idea of Jesus as the beloved son can be a little trippy when you start to try to figure out, like, is Jesus God and how does that all work? But the key to understanding this phrase is not about Jesus' nature. It's about Jesus' relationship with God the Father. In other words, God is saying, this is my son whom I love. This is my chosen person. This is the, the object of my affection, son. And then he gives this instruction, listen to him. Heed, slow down, take time to hear what he says. And then this is my favorite, favorite moment of the whole story. And then it's all over. Everything disappears except for Jesus. Only Jesus, just Jesus alone standing there. No military encampment is necessary. No big three is necessary to win an NBA title, to create some great music, or to make a fantastic movie. The only thing needed for the next part of Jesus' mission is just Jesus. So here's what we find out from this story. In a moment, where the disciples have a lot of questions and they get to see what's behind the curtain, what these three disciples find out is Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and even more. Jesus is the real deal. This whole thing has not been a sham. He's not a counterfeit. He's not coming up short in any way. This is a behind-the-scenes look at Jesus' real identity, and all of those disciples see like, oh, no, this dude is different. There's something even more significant than what I thought going on behind the scenes with this guy, Jesus. I want to point out just quickly three things, I think, from the story that we can see about Jesus, and then we're going to land in what this means for us, all right? Three, three things quickly that I think this story shows us about who Jesus is that I think are very important. Number one, Jesus doesn't reflect God's glory, but he radiates his glory. Now, God's glory or glory is a difficult word to define or wrap our hands around in Hebrew or in Greek or even in English, right? Like when we talk about glory, we have an idea of what we mean. But if I asked you to define it, you'd be like, I, I'm not sure. What it seems to be is this idea of glory is the expression, the full expression of all of God's beauty contained in all of his attributes. So it's like if you took all of God's goodness, crammed it into a jar, his glory is what would radiate out of it. 
His glory is his reputation or his fame. It is the weight of all of who he is. Now, Moses, all the way back in Exodus, experiences God's glory. And in fact, you remember the story that I told you about the tabernacle and the cloud? Well, Moses would go into the tabernacle, meet with God, the face to face, and when he would come out, guess what would happen? His face would shine. Like that he had experienced the presence of God in some, some, oh, such an overwhelming way that it changed the actual the countenance of his face. So much so, it was so disturbing for God's people, they'd be like, hey man, you got something you could cover up your face with? Like a veil or maybe a mask or something? Because it's too much for us to handle. But over time, Moses' face would fade. Because Moses was just reflecting or responding to this glory of God, the weight of all of God's goodness in some sort of physical form. Jesus, on the other hand, is not reflecting anything in the passage. Jesus is the glory of God. And Jesus is emanating all of God's goodness, his character, his nature in this moment. He is showing these three disciples something distinct, something unique about who he is. He is unlike Moses and unlike Elijah in this. He does not reflect God's glory. He emanates it. Now, this is important when it comes to understanding the nature of who Jesus is. In fact, the writer of Hebrews thinks this is so important. It's the way he starts his book. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So back in the day, God made himself known through guys like Moses and Elijah. But in these last days, these times, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Verse three, he is, that's Jesus is, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so Jesus is here in this moment, in the story, not to speak a word about God that he heard from someone else. But Jesus is emanating who God is. Everything about what Jesus did on earth is telling us something about God's character and nature. So, when you and I have questions about who God is, the first place we look is Jesus. He is emanating, radiating, putting on display God for you. This means we should not say something silly like I often hear people say. The God of the Old Testament and Jesus. There's this God of the Old Testament and that God is different from who Jesus is. No, 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 no. The God we see in the Old Testament is God revealed to us partially. When we get to the New Testament, we get Jesus and we get the revelation of who God is Fully, they're not opposed to each other. Jesus radiates the very glory of God. Second thing we get from the story is this. Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. That's the reason nobody responds to Peter's dumb idea. Jesus is the place where God dwells. You see that? 
This is what John tells us in John chapter 1. That the God dwelt among us. That word is the same word. God tabernacled among us. Jesus is what Isaiah promised. Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus is God showing up in person. And so we don't need a tabernacle or a tent to house Jesus. God's presence has already been walking around and interacting with people all the way through the story. God in Jesus is dwelling with his people. He doesn't need to be contained or veiled, boxed up, covered, or put in a tent. In fact, the reason Jesus came, in part, was to make sure that you knew exactly what it would be like to walk around in God's presence. Number three, Jesus is not an add-on to the law and the prophets. He is the point of the law and the prophets. Now, Moses is associated with the law. And often, uh, Jewish people this time would just refer to the law as Moses or the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses. And often they would, would talk about then some of the other books of the Bible who uh, profiled and talked about some of these prophets like Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah, just those are the prophets. And sometimes they use that as a shorthand to talk about the entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So here's what we see in this story. The law giver Moses shows up and the prototypical prophet Elijah shows up. And they have a discussion about with Jesus, but it is not about Jesus doing what uh, some sort of restoration to the law, or it's not about Jesus doing some sort of mission that Elijah has for them. Does that make sense? Instead, they're talking about what Jesus is going to do. That Jesus' departure or his exodus or his death, what he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem is the point of the law and the prophets. Jesus says the same thing. His disciples are confused about this after his resurrection. The very end of Luke, Jesus is walking with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're like questioning, wow, we don't understand the resurrection. We don't understand Jesus' death and we heard that he's resurrected from the dead and we don't understand how all of that makes any sort of sense. And Jesus, walking with his disciples, explains to them, Luke says, how the law and the prophets were all about him. Which is why at the end of this story, the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are gone. It's just Jesus. Just Jesus, his future death and his future resurrection. The entirety of the Old Testament points this way. Everything Moses every, ever wrote down is pointing or leading us to this moment. Every story about Elijah is a story meant to push this story further down the road. See, Jesus is not the big three with Moses or Elijah. He is not, they are not Chris Bosch and Dwayne Wade to his LeBron James. He is not Tom Holland, and in his time of need, he needs Andrew Garfield. Or for Christ's sake, he doesn't need Tobey Maguire, Right? Instead, it's just Jesus. The whole story has been about him. Now, check this out. Last thing, they're still confused. Disciples are confused. I would be confused too. Verse nine. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Okay, so Jesus first says, don't tell anybody about this. We've seen this several times through Mark, and the question is, why not? Well, I think it's probably two things. Uh, One, because it's a weird story. And remember, there's this movement for the Messiah to be a king, and Jesus does not want anything like that to happen. He's not looking to be placed as an earthly king on an earthly throne. And so he doesn't want to feed that movement at all. The second thing is, practically, the disciples are still confused. You ever listen to someone tell a story, and they don't understand the point of the story? Some of you guys maybe right now are like, yeah, I'm doing that in this moment, right? Thank you very much. It doesn't make any sort of sense. And so Jesus is just saying, let's don't confuse people, because you're obviously confused, right? You still don't understand what this resurrection from the dead thing means, so let's just don't tell this story until it's all clear to you. So then they say, hey, but here's what we're confused about. We thought Elijah was supposed to come first. Adding Elijah to the equation has got us all mixed up. Now, that's true. And so what they're thinking of in Jesus' time, what Jewish people held, Old Testament teaches, is that there was going to be this final resurrection, that all of God's people were going to be raised in the last days. And so when they hear resurrection, what they're thinking of is not an individual like Jesus being uh, uh, raised from the dead. They're thinking of this entire group of God's people in the last days being resurrected. And they've connected that to the story that Elijah is going to come back And Elijah is going to be like this precursor to this final resurrection. So you can understand why they're confused. They're like, whoa, Elijah just showed up, but I'm not dead, right? You're talking about a resurrection, but it doesn't seem to be a resurrection that involves all of us. We don't know what's going on. And so then Jesus answers, verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And, it is how, and, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now, in other places we've learned in the book of Mark that when Jesus talks about this Elijah coming, what he means is John the Baptist. And so what he's saying is the spirit of Elijah that's coming to prepare a way for God's kingdom, that already happened, that was John. You know what happened to John? They killed him. The secular authorities hated him and had him executed. The religious authorities hated him too and they wanted him executed. And he goes, which is why you should think about, guys, what it's written about the Son of Man too. He's gonna suffer as well. That's what they did to John, who's just preparing the way. Imagine what the response is going to be to the real deal the one who is ushering in the kingdom. Which then just points us back to Jesus, his mission and what he came to do. Here is what Jesus wants his disciples to understand and what I think he wants you to understand this morning. Jesus is the promised king. But he didn't come like the disciples were thinking, to overthrow the powerful Roman government. Or he didn't come to overthrow or get rid of the self-righteous religious leaders by some sort of military strength or power or charisma, but he came to die. 
to accomplish a mission in Jerusalem. And this entire story is almost like a funnel. It starts with this transcendent, unexplainable experience with light and dead guys, and then funnels into just Jesus by himself, and then funnels even more specifically to Jesus' suffering. So Jesus is the real deal. But when you peek behind the curtain, it's not just light and glory and dead guys in a transcendent experience. It is pointing toward where Mark is now moving. Jesus is suffering his death and resurrection. He's not an add-on to the law and the prophets, remember. He's the point. And now Jesus is breaking down their concept of the Messiah. And he's saying very clearly, very clearly, he's not coming to get people to obey the law again. He's coming to lay down his life for people who can't obey the law. And he isn't coming as a prophet like Elijah pronouncing judgment on the people, but he is coming to absorb judgment for people in their place, to be judged instead. And that's what Moses was talking about. And that's what Elijah was talking about. And that's who Jesus is. And so the law and the prophets will naturally start to fade or take on a different sort of meaning and understanding. William Cooper says it this way. The gospel so much exceeds in glory. The gospel, the good news that Jesus died for us in our place. This coming promised king laid down his life, taking the full judgment of sin, taking the full penalty of sin in his own death, dying for you and for me in our place. The gospel so much exceeds in glory that it eclipses the glory of the legal, the law. What was it contained in the Old Testament? It doesn't do away with it. It eclipses it, he says. As the stars disappear when the sun ariseth and goes forth in a strength. Here's what's happening. A major transition where we see Jesus, who he is and what he came to do, in all of that glory and light is going to cause everything else to fade into the background. Now, cool story, right? Wild story. But maybe you're asking this question, well, what do I do with it? What do I do now? What does this mean for my everyday life? I think the instruction's right in the middle of the passage. I think what Jesus would have for you to do is the same thing that God instructed those three disciples to do. This is my beloved son. This is identity. We see his purpose. The instruction is listen to him. Consider, heed, understand, listen to him. And listen to Jesus. That's the one to be listened to. This is super important. I don't want to belabor this point. But the truth is, over the past several years, my heroes have let me down. Can I just be really frank with you? I don't want to get into politics right now. It's not what I'm about to say it doesn't mean to sway any sort of political opinion. You know what's disheartening thing that's happened in my life in the past five years? Hearing men pastors, church leaders, 
justify wrong because their candidate, their chosen candidate is who they wanted to be right. I've said this to you before. I'm going to say it again. If adultery and sexual immorality was wrong when Bill Clinton was president, it was wrong when Donald Trump was president. And it was incredibly difficult not to know that he's a flawed guy. All of our presidents are incredibly flawed. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't vote for him if that's your political conviction. What's disheartening is to hear pastors go, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And we have a choice. We can listen to those guys. You can listen to me. I hope you listen to me today. The point, though, isn't listening to any one hero and latching on to any one church leader. The point is listening to Jesus, to him. That's our standard. That's who we follow. I will disappoint you. The closer some of you guys get to me, you're going to peek behind the curtain and you're going to go, uh. Every single person you know behind the curtain is a train wreck. Except for Jesus. Behind the curtain is a perfect expression of who God is, his love for you. Behind the curtain of Jesus is a solitary, unwavering commitment to his mission to rescue you from sin and death. No bad news behind the curtain. So, if you came in today, and like, I'm just not sure about this Jesus thing, here's what I would encourage you with. Listen and consider. Be open to the fact that perhaps Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Maybe Jesus' death and resurrection does have implications for your life. Maybe this could be life-saving, life-altering, life-transforming news for you today. If this story is true, and I believe it is true, that Jesus is emanating light, hanging out with dead guys, and yet still, and yet still, has his mindset on dying for you in your place, I think that's significant enough to listen to. So listen and consider. And then for some of us who've been around the church game for a long time, who believe Jesus is exactly who he says he is, then I think the instruction for us is listen and heed. If Jesus radiates with the glory of God, if he is God with us, if he laid down his life for you when you couldn't obey the law and you couldn't obey the prophets, I think he's worth following, right? And doing so wholeheartedly. I think that's why Peter, James, and John are there. Because we're going to find out they're about to pay an incredible price to follow Jesus. They got this story. They heard God say, no, you listen. This is who you need to listen to. And they heed. So, simple today. Here's where we park. Some of us need to listen and consider. Perhaps the story is true and it has implications for our lives. And some of us need to go, I already know it's true. I already know it has implications for my life. 
And we just need to follow in obedience.